0: I'm Michael Barber and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. Imagine looking at a bare patch of earth, imagine having the vision to see how that earth could become an intricate and beautiful garden that tells the history both of a house and of the people who lived in it across the centuries. Then imagine having the belief and the energy to create that. That's what historian and rare book librarian, Catherine Swift did with a piece of land in Shropshire. And she wrote a wonderful book about that project. I loved the book. It was called The Morville Hours. I was entranced. It's like a medieval book of hours, reflections on the season's passing, and not only the story of her project in the garden at the Dower House in the village of Morville but also the detailed stories of the people who helped her, who contributed to the project, the people who'd lived on that piece of land over the centuries in the past. It was a huge task to create that garden, took many years. It was a huge task to create the book that she wrote. What I wanted to know was, had Catherine Swift been daunted by the task, excited by the task, Or perhaps both.
1: I'd increasingly wanted to make a garden. And we had started looking for somewhere where I could make a garden. And I was at that time working as keeper of early printed books in Trinity College, Dublin. And it was my husband who, he used to meet me at the airport every Friday night with photographs of all the places that he was looking at as possible places where I could make a garden. So it was he who found Morville, and we had agreed to take it before I ever saw the place. It was just all potential. I was just terrifically excited. One of my husband's oldest friends said to me, how do you know that you can do it? But I just had no doubt. I'd never made a garden before, but I just had no doubt that I could do it.
0: That's amazing, because quite often when people take on a big, ambitious project, they feel a little bit overwhelmed by it at the beginning and the prospect. And you know if it's that ambitious, you've got to learn as you go. You don't know enough at the beginning to do what you finally did. Is that true?
1: Well, I suppose the the confidence that I could learn as I went along and could find out what I needed to know comes, you know, from being a librarian. You know you find the right book, you read it up, you take it to heart, and then you just do it. And then the next task, you look for the next good book. And, of course, the house here is just completely full of all the books that came into that.
0: Can you describe what the garden that you created is like? Just paint a picture for us.
1: The original plan was to make a series of gardens that would tell the history of the house where I live and the history of the the village. So in a way, it was a sort of academic historical project. But then the longer that I lived at Moorville and the more I found out about the local history and also the people who live here now, that garden became more and more involved with particular individuals. So right in the centre of the garden, there's a, a turf Maze, which is both the most ancient motif in the garden and also the most modern because it's like 21st century ideas of um, land art. And then there's a what we call the cloister garden, which has a cloister of yew around the outside of it and a sort of medieval monastic garden. There's an Elizabethan knot garden and um, a 17th century flower garden an 18th century water garden with a long canal down the the middle of it, and a late 18th century wilderness with a little Greek temple, and then a great big Edwardian fruit and vegetable garden, and a Victorian rose border. But each one of those increasingly, and this is what comes out in the book, each one of those gardens is... Associated with a particular person who lived here at that time.
0: So that sounds a very intricate, beautiful garden. But go back to 1988 when you first stood on the back doorstep, looking out at the space where that garden is. What was it like then?
1: It was just an old field and very uh, hum- hummocky and up and down. I had a local right. chap to come in and level it, and I sowed it all to grass seed, so it's like just one great big flat green billiard table. I'd already drawn the design up, which was very much generated from the architecture around me. So all the axes and sight lines are all um, drawn from the architecture of the house and the surrounding buildings. So I had the outline and planted a 1,000 feet of yew hedge. So right at the very beginning, It was just a green billiard table with these little whiskers of nine inch yew plants.
0: One of the things with artistic achievements is you have to be able to imagine what it could be like. Even when you're looking at a billiard table of grass, you were able to visualise what the garden would one day be like. Is that right? Exactly.
1: In a way, I think that's why the prospect of 20 years and the bigness of the project was not a problem for me because... The imagined hole was so real that by the end of the first winter, when I was designing it, I could really walk around in it and smell the flowers. And then I said to my husband, I don't need to make this garden at all because it exists so concretely in my head. And he very sweetly said, but you must make it so that I can see it too. Making the garden then was so he could see it as well. And so even now, for example when, you know, I'm still planting trees. As people always say, you plant trees that you will never see mature. But for me, they already are mature in my head. And I can just imagine what, what I've created and what they're going to look like. And they're very real to me, even if they're only four feet tall.
0: I think that's a remarkable set of insights, actually. And as you know, on these podcasts, I talk to politicians and sports people and so on. And I think that ability to visualise the future you're trying to create is probably a really important part of ambitious accomplishments.
1: Yes. And the, the other very helpful thing that was said to me by a very experienced older gardener was originally to put the whole thing down to grass, which I did, and then just work on one part of the garden at a time until that was completely finished and then move on to the the next part. And I could keep all the rest of it tidy, just with mowing. So the fact that the task was split up into six or seven different gardens and doing one at a time and completely focusing on that one thing meant that it was a constant succession of successes, if you like. It was very satisfying all the time as I went along. I wasn't looking at the the sort of distant, complete garden, the complete goal. I was just doing one bit at a time.
0: How long did it take till you had something close to the finished vision?
1: We first opened to the public after about five or six years, and that was very... Good, because people would come every year because they knew that there would be something. They could see, they could join in with all of that and they could see it all developing and they could see the next bit of the garden starting and so on. But I mean, I always say that a garden isn't a product, it's a process, you know. So it's, as you said yourself, gardens are never complete. But I suppose the big moment was when I first couldn't, could not see over the yew hedges. Because, of course, they started off as being nine inches and now they're about eight feet tall and very right. imposing. And, of course, to begin with, I could still see the whole site all at one go. And then when suddenly I couldn't see over them, then one's focus all just changed yes. and looked inward. And the, the the sensation of the different volumes of each area, which are very sort of conducive to the atmosphere. That was a really great moment. I thought we're we're getting on now, yes.
0: One of the things that really struck me about your book and that resonated with my own experience in a totally different field was this emphasis you have on routines and the calendar. I mean, I I had been working for Tony Blair uh, through to 2005 uh, and one of the things I did and he attributes to me was building routine into the way he organised his calendar so that he would review health every two months, mm-hmm. education every two months, instead of just responding to what was in the media and summoning ministers randomly. So I, I was uh, obsessed with building routine into the way the prime minister worked. And in the work I do around the world, that's still what I do for governments, build routines so that you, you have a plan, uh, a, a vision that you described, you have a plan, and then you routinely check it. And in your book, uh, the Morville Hours, you write a lot about routines. You seem to really enjoy, for example, the rhythm of digging a flower bed. You, you talk about how much you enjoyed mowing because it's got a kind of a rhythm and a routine to it. And then obviously in your before the Morville Garden, you loved books of hours from the Middle Ages, which described the routines of the liturgical and the uh, the agricultural year. Can you just talk about routines and how important they are? You have this lovely line about the 21st century is losing the battle to keep its calendar. Is it about you and about the garden that connects to that?
1: Well, the second half of that statement, the 21st century is fighting a losing battle to keep its calendar. Then the next sentence is gardeners, of course, have never lost it. As a gardener, it's not just simply, well, as being, say, not being a gardener, Everything can seem just like one, one damn thing after another, you know, like in the Alan Bennett in The, in the History Boys. But, of course, as a gardener, you're tremendously involved yeah. in this sort of 12-month cycle and, and and that repeats itself. And then also, because in the garden here, because it's um, of the way the land lies, we're oriented almost exactly with the points of the compass and so the way the light moves around the garden so that we have the arc of the day and the way the light moves and then the arc of the the months the things that I know that I need to be doing at a particular time and then the whole the arc of the year coming all the way full cycle and you're really invested in that and that's really what appealed to me in the calendars that are in the books of hours. The way the liturgical year also mirrors the agricultural year, yes. I found that particularly inspiring. And given that the piece of ground where the garden is had originally been part of a Benedictine monastery, you know, I've and I could hear the church bells ringing uh, the, the hour. And and it, so one felt not only, you know, the arc of the year, but yes. a whole great big cycle of all the people who'd worked that bit of ground, you know.
0: But when you make your statement about the 21st century fighting a losing battle, are you saying that people who lose sight of the liturgical calendar, the agricultural calendar, the cycle of the year, all the, the points of the compass, that, that in the 21st century, an awful lot of people who are rootless because they don't have that set of routine?
1: Yes, exactly. And I think that was one of the good things that came out of the. Uh, The pandemic and lockdown, of course, people getting back in touch with the natural world and the cycle of the seasons and the cycle of each day. I think there's also that when you talked about what I wrote about digging, I think there's also a question there of pacing oneself, because when the task that I was facing, digging a particular bed, if you looked at the whole thing, you could easily get so exhausted before you've started. And I would always just be, I say to myself, I'll just, I'm really knackered. I will just dig to yeah. the end of the row. And then when I get to the end of the row and I think, uh, well, I'm all, I'm not too bad, I'll just do this. And as it began, it looks so lovely when it's all been dug. You sort of lead yourself by the nose to finally, you've actually dug the whole thing without really meaning to. Of course, I should say, I was just going to say, because we're not supposed to dig nowadays, the fashion is very much no dig, because we mustn't disturb all the microbial fungi.
0: What you describe with, with digging is very similar to how I think about writing when I'm writing a book. Yeah. I say, well, if I just get X yeah. hundred words done, I'll be happier. Then I get a rhythm and then I find I've written 2,000 or whatever. It's, it's a very similar. And so was your experience of designing a garden helpful to you in writing a book? I
1: was 14 years in writing the book. The publisher and my agent and everybody would say, well, how far have you got? And the thing is, I, I never knew how far I'd got because I was always, it was all as if each, each chapter, each section was like a stone that was gradually gathering moss because I was working on, in one sense, I was working on all of it all of the time, but concentrating on, you know, adding to little bits all the way through. So in, in a way, it, uh, yes, I hadn't yeah. thought of that before, but almost the way I was approaching digging, yes.
0: Interesting. So one of the things that comes through in the book, and you're very open and generous about this, is that you couldn't have done it all on your own. Obviously, there was your husband who you mentioned earlier on, but there are also a lot of people in the local community. You, you talk about Carl the hedge layer. You talk about... Tony Bradley, who helped you when you were ill later on, you depended on quite a network of local relationships that you built, didn't yeah, you?
1: Yeah. And, and in a way, that was a direction in which the, the book went, that there is, a, in each chapter, a figure in the landscape. And I wanted to celebrate each of those people, who not, not only the people who'd helped directly, but people I'd talked to and lived close to, almost all of whom are now dead of course, and I wanted to save their stories and to memorialise them because in history they're the sort of people who who don't get their stories told. I felt very strongly the people who'd lived in the big house here with all their legal documents and their wills and so on and their big tombstones, people remember them but they don't remember. The grave digger and, and the pig man and the hedge layer. And that, that's what I wanted to do in the book was remember them.
0: Yeah, so you remembered them in the book, but they were also actually oh, yes. useful to you in making the garden happen, weren't they?
1: I remember one particular moment right at the beginning. The field that became the garden had already been levelled and ploughed. And I sowed it all to grass seed with a what's called a fiddle, you know, to, that b- broadcasts the, the seed. But then it all had to be raked over and rolled flat and there was an enormous storm coming. One could see the great big clouds building up outside the garden. And so I started raking because the thing is, if it rained, the seed would all be picked up by the rollers. You know, we had to get it all covered before it could be rolled. And gradually all, all my neighbours came and all bringing their own rakes and we gradually we all worked together to get it all covered. And then just as the light was going, the local farmer came with his, his tractor and roller and rolled it with his headlights on. Yes, it, it it was just a wonderful moment.
0: In my book, Accomplishment, which, which quotes your book uh, uh, about routines and uh, things we've been talking about, one of the things I write about, both in relation to government, but also big organisations, uh, elite sport, is to get anything ambitious done, you need a goal and the vision that you described. You need the routines that you establish that track whether you're on track or not and help solve problems as you get on with it. And then you need what I call a guiding coalition, the small group of people who will see you through the difficult times and the challenges. And you seem to be very, very strong at putting that, what I call a guiding coalition together, but the, the group of people who would get behind the idea.
1: One of my very close neighbours, Dan, who, who at that stage, I think, was in his late 80s and walked with a stick. And when I was myself ill, I had quite a long period of illness in the 1990s. And he came and planted fruit trees with me, which I couldn't have done on my own, and then went back home and sat in his chair, and he said he thought he was going to have a heart attack. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and But I was also sworn not to tell anybody that he'd done it in, because he was being so modest about it.
0: Your example of the seeds and that story show that people around you in, in the local community, they were quite inspired by your vision and what you were up to. You've got a community motivated to help you get the, the big task done. Is that right?
1: Yes. And then also when when I came to write the book and I was very conscious that I was writing their stories and, and that they knew that I was doing that and they could then look and we could make sure that I... Hadn't said anything that they wouldn't have liked, and then the lovely thing was, Bloomsbury, the publishers, when I said I'm, I really would like to have an index, and so I could index all the local people, and so they're yes. they're, they're indexed under their Christian names, and then cross-referenced under their surnames, so that everybody can find themselves and and their, and all their friends and so on, you know.
0: Yes, that's a great way of acknowledging people. You obviously had a vision of something beautiful, but was it for a deeper reason? Was there some almost a spiritual need?
1: Well, it's, it's not really a, a moral point of view, but from a very personal point of view, although I'd always had the idea that I would like to make a big garden. When I first went to Dublin and um, was being shown around and meeting all the other keepers and members of staff, the person who was taking me round did say of one person that I was going to meet, his wife just died, and but he's thrown himself into his work, and that has saved him. And I had this very clear, immediate feeling, well, I love my work, I love my job, but that wouldn't do it for me. And the second thought was, I know what would do it for me, and it is to have a garden not... To, to take care of, really, you know, to, uh, uh, to have a, a role and yes. a function. And then I thought, well, if it means that much to me, I really need to, to do it. And, and so two years later, I started doing it.
0: That's amazing. And you, you have a lovely line in the book about people who make and keep books. You say it's a quiet sort of heroism, the making and keeping of books. Do you think the making and keeping of a garden is also a quiet sort of heroism
1: i have a friend who says that he's a martyr to his garden but i i hope i've not been right. a martyr to to the garden i mean it is it is immensely hard work because of course you know all, although the, the community is all interested in it and behind it and uh and so on but the work of actually doing it was all always just down to me because of course there was no money to pay anybody you know i mean i do have help A bit of help
0: now. One of the first podcasts I did in this Accomplishment podcast series was with a guy called Peter Hyman, who originally I knew because he worked with me in number 10 in the Blair years, but then he went and became a teacher and then founded a chain of schools in the east of London in uh, in Newham. And one of his big themes about current education, that so these are good state schools for ordinary kids from that part of London, but he has his curriculum. He very consciously builds it around the physical, the mental, and the emotional. So he wants people who experience making things. He wants children to learn the standard curriculum, whether it's maths or or, or science or history, but he also wants them to learn how to get on with each other and get to that emotional level. And he talks about the hand, the head, and the heart. And reading your book, you see how all those things come together in the garden, the hand, the head, and the heart. Has that been a source of fulfilment for you?
1: Yes, in, enormously. And of course, that's the, the the way of life that is described in the um, the Benedictine rule, going back to the, the monks again, that their lives were to be divided between um, physical work and study and prayer. So I've always continued with my academic interests and so on, as well as the physical work, and then, of course, the, the spiritual dimension, as you as you say.
0: Although you had a big vision and you got on with the plan and you chunked it up into the sections of the garden, as you described, there must have been moments when you thought, this is going horribly wrong or it's not going to work or something. Did you have dips? I talk about implementation dips. You have an idea and then when you get started, actually things get worse before they get better sometimes. Did you have any moments like that?
1: It sounds a bit of a a cliche, but in a way every disaster was also an opportunity and that it made you look at that particular part of the garden in a a different way. For example, really recently, we had to take out, not miles, but a a great deal of box hedging. And the box hedging, because it had box blight, the hedging was particularly close to my heart because I had grown the whole hedge from 1500 cuttings that were no bigger than the sort of the top joint of my thumb. And I'd always said, if I have to dig the box out, I'm just going to give up. I just can't face it. But we did and had to replant it with um, a sort of lookalike thing with euonymus. And of course, the box had got really rather overgrown and um, too big, too tall And um, when we replanted it with all this new neat little hedge, all the wonderful rows of old hyacinths and old tulips and old narcissi that had been swamped and I hadn't seen for decades under the box hedge, suddenly all bloomed again and I saw tulips that I thought were long dead and I certainly hadn't seen for a decade and it was the most wonderful Sort of rejuvenation of the garden, but it was a nasty moment, you know.
0: I love libraries, I haven't had the depth of experience that you have in your career. I go around libraries and I think about uh, what a, a magnificent job somebody over the centuries has done to leave that as it is. It's like a bit like a garden of the library, isn't it? Because you, you have to keep curating it for the future. The word that I think of in relation to libraries, but may also apply in relation to gardens, is stewardship. Yes. You're looking after it. You won't always be there, but you're going to pass it on better than you found it. Is that how you think about your garden uh, and about your librarian? Is, is there something common to your the, the aspects of your career there?
1: A question that was always asked of me by early garden visitors was, "How can you put this amount of time and effort into this when you don't own the site? When I'd only got a twenty-year lease, you know?" But I did very much feel that no gardens are are forever and that somebody else is going to come afterwards and that we do only sort of borrow the land and it's our responsibility to curate it as you say that as best we can and then but then somebody else will follow.
0: Yeah I think in that way um, land is is not like other property is it because you know I, I can I can own a book or a, a car or a a piece of furniture and it'll be mine and maybe I'll pass it on, but it doesn't really matter. But with land, it's always going to go on to somebody else. And you've done a very beautiful thing with with the land in Moorville. When you look ahead, say 20, 30 years, what do you hope for your garden?
1: Well, I think what may survive of it, if other things don't, will be that original outline plan that I drew, which was the lines of... The U hedges because it was it was quite a moment when ordnance survey maps went over to being um, digital, and suddenly I could see that on the ordnance survey map was the the outline of my U hedges. Even if all the flowers, even if everything is becomes grassed over or or simplified, you know, I think those lines of hedges that and the pattern that they make, dividing the garden up into these six or seven different areas. I think they will survive and it may, it may be in you know, hundreds, even thousands of years given how old you trees can, can be. People will look at this shape and wonder what it was all about. What was it for? Yes. It'll, it'll be a mystery. Nobody will know what went on there. What was it for? <laughs>
0: so yeah, so you'll be you're, you're, you're yeah. creating the future of archaeology in a way. thank you very much for the conversation i've absolutely loved it and, as I said at the beginning, I, I thought your book was an absolutely beautiful book, and the story that you've that you tell in the book and that we 've discussed, I find very, very inspiring. Is there anything else you wanted to bring into the conversation that you wish i'd asked about
1: well, about not being dismayed, I suppose, by long term projects, my doctorate took me seven years, because I was working full-time at the same time, and the garden is, is now, as you say, 35 yes. years years old. And But the, the book that I'm writing at the moment, I've been writing for about 12 years, but I'm not dismayed by that. I hope I can bring that to fruition as well.
0: Good. Well, I'm sure um, all your readership will look forward to that book whenever it emerges. That's wonderful. Thank you very much indeed, Catherine, for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation.
1: It's been really lovely to talk to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks especially to guest Catherine Swift. You can get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. And feel free to suggest guests whose stories of change you'd like to hear. There's also a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Don't forget to review the Accomplishment podcast and to subscribe so you don't miss great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team.